Welcome to Liquid Church Audio. The message you're about to enjoy was originally delivered at Liquid by Pastor Tim Lucas. LiquidChurch.com, living water for a thirsty generation. Now, we're live on the web. in our current series, Rock God, in which we're taking a look at faith through the lens of uh, popular music. Any other U2 fans here uh, tonight? Yeah, a few of you, okay? I want to be upfront about my bias. I am a U2 fanatic. Uh, became one in high school when I first saw them live at the Meadowlands. I was like totally hooked. Uh, like Bono scaled the rigging on the stage and he sang with like such passion and conviction. I like became a groupie. Seen him about over 10 times. Anyone more than 10? More than 10, 10, 11. We had 12 at the other service. Anyone seen him farther than Anaheim? Anyone? So many others. It was, it was like, yeah, I saw him in London. I was like, Berlin, baby. We were over there backpacking uh, after Europe, and uh, we hopped a train to Berlin, went and saw him on the Zoo TV tour, and it was amazing. Just totally rocked. And uh, it just, um, it was the neatest thing, because beyond the incredible live show that YouTube puts on, I think what draws most fans to their work is really the incredible spiritual depth of their music. Um, U2 has always been about, you know, the big ideas beyond your, you know, your typical rock themes of love and relationships. They tackle issues like, you know, apartheid, war, politics, poverty, commercialism, and perhaps most significantly, what it means to have authentic spiritual faith. And maybe that explains the recent spate of books that have come out uh, in the last couple of years exploring, exploring the, uh, the spiritual meaning of music. One of the better ones is entitled Walk On, The Spiritual Journey of U2 by Steve Stockman. He's a, a Presbyterian chaplain at uh, actually Queen's University in Belfast. And this is kind of like a spiritual companion to their albums. Kind of explores the religious themes in a lot of their songs and performances. And it's interesting because it tracks the group's beginnings from early on when they were part of Dublin's Shalom Christian Fellowship. They were actually going to leave music and full-time kind of like a, a monastic kind of life. But, but Stockman writes as both a pastor and a fan. Highly recommend it to you. Uh, but the one I'm reading now, this is One Step Closer by Christian Sharon. I'm kind of reading this for the series, all right? And uh, he's a Lutheran pastor, and the subtitle tells the central premise. Why you two matters to those seeking God. And what's interesting is that he makes the point that what's so compelling about U2's music is the diverse audience it tracks. You know, while their, their music explores a lot of like different theological and spiritual themes, it's actually embraced by many people who wouldn't consider themselves religious. In fact, a lot of people who are suspicious of Christianity or organized religion kind of find a lot of hope and faith in their music. And the main idea he gives for why U2's music matters to those seeking God is because their lyrics really relate to anyone who's on a spiritual journey. And maybe that's you. I mean, maybe you're here for the you know, first time this week or you came last week, met someone who hadn't been to church in 14 years and they came last week and they're coming back. Maybe a friend invited you. And you're open to the idea that maybe there's something more. I mean, the, the concept of God like connects with you, but, but you're unsure of how it all fits together or maybe intimidated even by, by being in church. Um, well, first off, first I'll just tell you, put you at ease, relax. <laughs> you are among friends. You see people wearing flip-flops and stuff. That's great. <laughs> but secondly, I want to affirm the fact that you can be spiritual without having to be religious. In fact, uh, my guess is that you likely began your spiritual journey long before having set foot in this church. And you're welcome here to join the rest of us who are simply trying to you know, grow closer to God and figure out this whole faith thing together. But we're trying to do that in a unique way, <laughs> without pressure, without judgmentalism, 
guilt, hypocrisy, all the junk that's commonly associated with organized religion. Now, personally, I think what speaks to me the most about U2's music is I, I kind of see it as like the, the soundtrack to my own life. I mean, my own spiritual journey when I think about it. Uh, their songs kind of run the gamut, you know. But the, the, for me, you know, where the streets have no name, this transcendent kind of anthem, scaling the heights of belief and hope where God's goodness kind of floods the earth. Um, it's like the soundtrack for my life on good days. Unfortunately, Pastor Glenn has it as his cell phone ring, so he's totally wrecking the song for me. It kind of stinks. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, but all the way to, uh, you know, still haven't found what I'm looking for, which Bono actually has described as a gospel song with a restless spirit. kind of captures the ambivalence and doubt that every follower of Christ wrestles with at some point in their journey. But I like that idea that U2's music could be the soundtrack for a person's spiritual journey, no matter where you are. In fact, if you're just joining us for the last uh, two weeks, we've been charting the, the spiritual journey of a man named Joe, Jonah, right? His story is told in the Old Testament in the Bible. And it's an incredible story of a man who really wrestles with his, his faith in God. I mean, I won't go through the whole thing. In fact, if you'd like to, uh, to catch up, you can pick up a free CD of, of the message Born to Run at the Welcome Center after the service. I don't know if we have any left. We had hundreds go this morning. But, but pick them up because um, Jonah is a man whose spiritual journey took him from actually real closeness with God. I mean, this guy was a prophet. So, like, God spoke to him directly. His word came to Jonah. But he actually took off running in the opposite direction of God when life got scary for him. And we've been acknowledging the reality that if we're completely honest, there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. I mean, even if you've been a follower of God for a long time, there are moments when you want to run the opposite direction and faith gets confusing. Or maybe, again, you're at arm's length and you're like, I'm not even sure if I can, can draw close to God. Well, to bring you up to speed, what I thought we might do is something unique. I want to kind of track Jonah's spiritual journey um, using U2's music as a soundtrack for it. Because the themes and titles of many of their songs perfectly fit the sequence of Jonah's life. Um, it all starts with Yahweh. It's, that's one of the best cuts, in my estimation, from How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. And some of you know that Yahweh is the Hebrew name for the Lord, the God of the Old Testament, the Bible. And we're told in Jonah 1.1 that the word of Yahweh, or the Lord, actually came to Jonah and he told him to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. And the idea is, is that the God of the Bible will actually speak directly to those who put their trust in him and give us directions for how and where he wants us to live our lives. And sometimes he asks us to do things we don't want to do. Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. Why? Because the Ninevites were wicked. Their theme song would be, So Cruel. One of my favorite cuts off of Octoon Baby. Now, they were on a track with, give me a break here, come on. They, they were not cruel in the romantic sense. They were actually physically violent people. If you remember, Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And they were notorious for one thing, their cruelty towards enemy nations. Barbaric people in battle. When the Assyrians invaded a town, they raped the women first, set fire to the children, and actually skinned the remaining men alive, burning them in the ground up to their necks, stake through the tongue to die of thirst in the desert wickedness is how scripture says it brutality so cruel in fact that god said i've actually had it with them their, their wickedness has reached me and i'm sending you jonah to preach to them to give them a message and the message is this love and peace or else <laughs> in other words jonah's message was to be a hey, turn from your cruelty your, your your violent ways and surrender to god or else or else he will actually destroy you <laughs> and you can understand why jonah was not eager to deliver that message i mean he not only hated them but he feared them and so he begins running, not, not running to stand still, but to get away from God. And his theme song would have been The Refugee. Now I'm reaching back to the war album. You remember this? Yeah, he runs from God 3,000 miles in the opposite direction, gets on a boat and, and flees. But what Jonah didn't know is that God had a tune of his own. You remember the first U2 song ever to come out in America? Walk away, walk away, walk away. 
I will follow. And we learned that you can run from God, but you can't outrun God. He will follow and sometimes send a storm along to get your attention. And sure enough, Hurricane, you know, Flossie hits the boat Jonah's traveling on and everything is literally out of control. Total chaos. The sailors freak out. They think they're going to die. But Jonah says, actually, this is my fault. I'm running from God. This is why this is happening. So they throw him in the ocean. You remember this song off the boy album? Anybody? I know I'm reaching like back here. But as he's thrown overboard in chapter one, verse 15, Jonah literally becomes the drowning man, right? Suffice to say, Joan, I think we all know this, Chris, was stuck in a moment you can't get out of, all right? And we've all been there at some point. You know, when the decisions we make blow up in our face and the consequences of life seem unfair, and it's like, try as we might to turn things around, we're stuck. Jonah is literally stuck. God sends a huge fish to swallow him, actually keep him from drowning, and Jonah's stuck in the belly of that fish for three days and three nights, Scripture says. And it's at that point that he prays one of the most heartfelt and beautiful prayers in all of Scripture. That's what we looked at last week. And the essence of Jonah's cry was, love, rescue me. He called on the chesed, or the pursuing love of God. He confesses his failure. He says, I I failed, I can't help myself. And he's remorseful for running. And he throws himself on God's mercy and says, can you reach me down here in the depths of my life? And that word chesed, that, that word is translated into our English language as grace. God's loving kindness when we least deserve it. Even when we stiff arm God, ignore, diss, or, or, you know, run run from him, his rule in our life. God is always willing to give us a second chance to hear our prayers and actually offer grace, love and forgiveness when we least deserve it. And so Jonah's near death. He's 20,000 leagues under the sea. And God says, in essence, all right, here we go. Wake up, dead man. (laughs) And he's giving you a second chance. And he commands his fish to vomit Jonah onto dry land. That is literally how chapter two ends. And we learn that truly God works in mysterious ways. Yeah, all right. Thank you. The soundtrack of Jonah. Okay. Now tonight we're going to look quickly at chapter three, where literally Jonah walks on. Maybe now you understand why I chose this as a theme song, because after all the pain and the craziness and the hard lessons in his spiritual journey, Jonah finally like gets his mind right and he decides to obey God and actually walk on to Nineveh as he was originally instructed and deliver God's message to them. Now, here's the deal. Walk on. It's actually a wonderful song. Uh, it won the Grammy Award for record of the year in 2002. Kind of all about walking on in the face of adversity and putting faith in what you can't actually see with your physical eyes. I, I ever feel like you can't understand why God would let something happen in your life? How many feel that way? Yeah. Or you get or you get the sense that God's maybe asking you to do something that's going to require a lot of faith to walk into. That's what Jonah 3 is all about and where we pick up our story tonight's page 645 in your Bible. Time will give us a little bit more lights there if you get a sec, but uh, let me pray for us before we, uh, before we dive in. God, we thank you um, for Jonah and for your word and uh, your invitation to every man and woman in this room and listening online, Lord, to draw close to you, to walk on in faith even when the going gets tough in our lives. And so I want to Ask your spirit, Jesus, to guide us into the truth of your word. And I ask you to speak with clarity to many of us here tonight, me included. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's read this together and continue the journey. Jonah 3, verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Let's read this together a second time. The beauty of the grace of God of second chances. 
The prophet who didn't deserve any grace and God comes back to him a second time, give him another chance to reclaim his purpose and move in the new direction God has for him. Now, here's the deal. In school, you know, you know, you weren't allowed to like write in your books. These Bibles we bought so that you could actually write in them. Okay. So I want you to write tonight. Click your pen there and circle the word second time and write next to it the word Shani, S-H-E-N-I-Y. It's a Hebrew word for a second time. And it literally means, it translates to again and again and again and again and again. God came to him a shaney. God came to Jonah a second time. Now tonight, my guess is that God is going to come to some of you a shaney, a second time, or again, and again, and again. Because for some of you, you've actually put off God for years, and he's reached out to you, and he's coming to you a shaney again. Now, there's others of us who, who maybe you have some unfinished business with God. You, you know God, you've been traveling with him for a while, the whole Jesus thing. But God's given you a specific assignment. I mean, it may be to reach out to someone, you know, in your life, but you haven't done it. And God will come to you a shaney, a second time. Or God may tell some of you to give something away or someone who's in need. And you know you're supposed to do it, but you have not done it. And you've put it off and God will come to you a shaney. There are others of us, um, maybe you're facing a moral decision. I mean, you know that morally you're kind of outside the bounds of what God wants for your life in some area. And God's like been showing you that you need to stop and do something different, change something. And God will come to you a shaney, a second time. And you have the choice of whether to walk on into that decision or actually ignore him again. I saw that earlier today. I was talking with a, a couple who has been coming for a couple weeks here. And, uh, you know, we've been talking kind of about the, even, the, the, you know, topically about kind of living together and the idea that actually God's, you know, a design for marriage does not include, you know, living together prior to marriage. But first week we talked about that. The guy, he came up to me, he said, I got to tell you, he goes, honestly, I heard that. And I was like, whoa tough stuff. They're living together. He's like, I thought maybe we need to make things right, you know, and and, kind of, you know, no longer live together. We want to get married, but we want to do it in God's way. And he goes, we talked about that and we had a great discussion, but nothing happened. So last week, Tim, you get up there and read that email from that guy in Australia. And my girlfriend nudges me and she's like, crap, it's coming up again. Second time. (laughs) God's coming to them. A shaney. He's not letting the issue drop. And the girl was like, I think God's speaking to us. A shaney. They've got a choice to receive God's direction a second time or actually ignore it again. I look back on my life and think about all the second chances I had. I mean, just in terms of of God trying to reach me and get me to go in his direction. My first memory of God kind of drawing me towards himself was in Sunday school with Miss Lillian. You know, Miss Lillian just embodied like the love of God, said we could trust him no matter what. And even when life didn't make sense, and I love Miss Lillian, you know, like really put my faith in, in, in her and in what she said about Jesus for the first time because of her influence, actually. I invited Jesus in my heart for the first time, which, by the way, should be like a huge encouragement to those of you who like work in liquid kids or with our teens. You are making an investment that can make an eternal difference in many lives. But it was in Miss Lillian's class that I first put my trust in God. Now, fast forward about 10 years. I go to like boys camp in the Adirondacks, Northern Frontier. And I remember sitting around a bonfire, I'm like 14 or 15, and, and there's this guy who's kind of speaking. He's like, not just about like, you know, knowing Jesus so you can like go to heaven, but, but actually about giving your whole life over to God's service. To stop living for yourself and start living for God. I remember that very vividly because like the flames on my face, the warmth of that moment and feeling drawn to God in a much more personal way, a shaney, a second time. But unfortunately, it didn't last very long. You know, I kind of just dropped out of the whole organized God thing in college. And just stopped going to church. Lived actually a pretty debauched life when I came home on break from college. Pretty much put God and faith in the rear view. Kind of more, much more interested in like girls and good times. But that was the year actually that my grandfather died. That God came to me, a shaney, at his funeral. 
which again, I remember vividly because I was asked to deliver a eulogy. And I loved my, I adored my grandfather. I loved my grandfather. He was a man of tremendous faith, actually taught me a lot about the Bible. And, and at that funeral, I had to draw back on like all the scripture, blow the dust off and the lessons they taught me and share this eulogy, I guess, that was, that was kind of stirring, kind of just inviting folks and myself to even see God even when the circumstances in our lives are tragic and don't make sense. And here's what I remember. At the end of that funeral, this guy comes up to me. He was an older pastor, kind of a lot shorter, kind of stooped over. And afterwards, the receiving line, we're like shaking hands. Oh, thanks for coming. He grabbed my forearm with this grip and like looked me straight in the eye and said, boy, God's given you a gift. You know that? And uh, I said, oh, okay, yeah, uh, th- thank you, thank you, just can move along. And, uh, you know, kind of, but he squeezed my arm harder and he wouldn't let go. He goes, boy, you got a gift. You don't use it. Shame on you. And he just stared me in the face. And he said, don't you waste your life. He goes, God gave you that gift for a purpose bigger than you. And then he walked out to the door. <laughs> and, oh, my gosh, at that moment, I can tell you, it was a bit jarring to say the least. But combined with the setting of my grandfather's funeral, who I deeply loved, it got my attention. And God came to me a shaney, a second time. And this time, I heard him and responded. There are those of you here today, you're going to recognize that God is coming to you again. And that it's actually time to do what Jonah finally did. And that is obey the call of God on your life. The grace of God is a, is a beautiful thing. It's a little bit like, like an Etch-a-Sketch. You remember those? Remember those Etch-a-Sketches? You know what that is? One of those, those little toys, about the size actually of this Bible, like where it has that like little silver screen, little knobs on each side, and you can kind of use them, you know, draw a picture or pictures. It's kind of, it's like, it's what they use in Kentucky for a computer. It's like, it's like kind of a, kind of redneck laptop, right? <laughs> I'm already imagining the email from the podcast listeners down south. That's good. Sorry. Anyway, you draw your picture on an Etch-a-Sketch, and if you screw it up, you make a mistake, you just shake the thing, right? And what happens? It clears the screen. You get another chance, a do-over. You can begin all over again. And there are those of you that God is going to come to you a shaney. The word of the Lord is going to come to you again a second time. And you have the choice, obey him or disobey his direction. Jonah chooses to obey. Look at verse 2. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Circle that word go there in verse 2. I'm going to give you two more Hebrew words. I know, you can thank Craig Rochelle from Life Church in Oklahoma for all this Hebrew uh, in these messages. The, the two Hebrew words are Q-U-W-M, Q-U-M, and Yalak. Q-U-M, Yalak. Can we say those two words together? Q-U-M, Yalak. And here's what they mean. Go now. Go immediately. Go suddenly with a sense of urgency. And the idea is that when God comes to you a shaney, you Q-U-M, Yalak. When God shows patience with your false start and offers you grace, a second chance, you, you, you go immediately. You obey God now because if you don't obey him, you actually may be tempted to talk yourself out of it again. <laughs> so you do it quickly. You do what God put on your heart and you do it now because if you give the enemy a chance, he may get in there and tell you, no, 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 that doesn't make sense. You don't really have to do that. When God comes to you as Shani, another time you cumulac, you go immediately. And, and, and God says to Jonah, go, cumulac, to the, to the great city of Nineveh. Now, now, here's where I stumbled, because I'm like, well, now, why did, why did God call this a great city? <laughs> I mean, the people were horrible. 
Their practices barbaric. Like, what's so great? Well, here's the deal. You need to know about Nineveh. For one, it was a cultural center, very great in influence. Military powerhouse, okay, in the first century here. Seven and a half miles of huge walls surrounding the entire city. About 120,000 people at the center. And it was like the, the, the cultural epicenter of the entire Assyrian Empire. And here's the deal. People went there to study, to learn, and the neighboring countries, like, hated them. They actually admired them, too, because it had such influence and prestige in the area. And God says, go and preach to these people that you hate, Jonah. And in verse 3, we see this. The first time, Jonah's like, no way, but this time, what's it say? Read it. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. I believe, candidly, with all my heart, that for some of you, this series will be a turning point in your life. Because you will decide today to obey and respond to what God's been showing you. I don't know what that is, but you're, you're going you're to be compelled to make a change. And in order to obey, to take that step, to walk on in the direction of God, you're going to need to follow Jonah's approach in verse 4, which says this. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. If you circle started, it's kind of like a little word there. You don't think it's much, but right beside it, the word chalau bo, C-H-A-L-A-L, bo, chalau bo. It sounds like chazon. I'm going to Italianize the Hebrew for you, all right? Um, and what this word literally means, and this is weird because it's like, what does this mean? It means to untie or let loose. In other words, to go as Jonah did, you literally have to loosen your grip on something. And it implies that Jonah, starting into the city, literally had to let go or relinquish his grip on something in his life. Do you remember last week? We looked at the linchpin verse in Jonah 2.8 that said, those who what? Cling to worthless idols. Forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Those who, those who cling, who hold tightly to the things that they think are actually a lot more important than God, those who cling to worthless idols miss out, miss out on the chesed, the grace, the pursuing love of God. In other words, in order to go where God wants you to go, you may have to chalau bo, let go of that which you're fiercely holding on to. And the point is that God may call some of you to go to some place in your life like Nineveh, somewhere you don't naturally want to go. And like Jonah, you may have to let go of your self-will to go there. God may call you to go do something that everyone else in your life is actually going to feel weird about or be critical of you for doing. And they're going to actually shake their heads and go, wait, wait, wait doing that that doesn't that doesn't make any sense and you're going to actually have to have to uh, let go about public opinion to do it you have to relinquish your grip on what others think about you in order to obey god in that area of your life the last service someone comes out and they're crying in tears and they say i know what it is it's a relationship i'm whole i i know that god has someone better in mind for me but this is scary tim because i know i've known this for weeks all right months that i'm supposed to let go Chlabo. Because this is not God's best for me. But it's scary. Yeah, I know. For me, personally here, just get real personal for a second. I know that in order for this church, this organization, Liquid Church, to grow, for me, see, I like to control things and, and like really like kind of hold on to them. And you know, In order for this church, yeah, Chris is like, amen, I know, I know, right? In order for this church to grow and actually become the kind of church that God has in mind and reach people that we, we I have to actually... I have to let go of control and trust others whom God has brought around me. I have to let go and let God. What do you have to let go of? 
What are you holding on to that God wants you to release so that you can actually experience the better thing that he has in mind? Requires trust, doesn't it? I mean, actually, that's why it's so hard. You're, you're putting your faith in something you can't see. One of my favorite lines from the song Walk On, I have these lyrics taped on a little post-it note on my, my screen, is you're packing a suitcase for a place none of us has been, a place that has to be believed to be seen. And I love that little inversion there because, because the world says, right, I'll believe it when I see it. But faith is actually defined as putting your faith in something you literally can't see. Jesus says in John 20, 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed that God has a bigger plan than, than your mind can comprehend. And that while it may seem scary at the time or define conventional wisdom, the most logical thing you can do from heaven's perspective is actually to let go. And let, and let God, let God sort out all the fallout of, of what's going to happen if you choose to walk in his direction. Let God be responsible for the outcome of making a hard choice. The word came of the Lord came to Jonah, a shaney, a second time. And Jonah started into the sea, chalabo, he let go. He obeyed God immediately, even though it was intimidating and scary. Now, I want you to imagine for a moment that you're Jonah and you're walking to Nineveh. And I'm honestly, I, I pause there, I'm just like, what was he thinking as he walked on? Like, what's going through his head? I'm thinking it's like, well, here comes the last sermon I'll ever preach. These guys stacked decapitated heads at the gates of the cities they conquered as a message so that this is what they were about. I mean, this man is stepping out in faith. This is a hard lesson here. And he's traveling to the very place that in all likelihood is almost certainly going to kill him. He'll preach his last message and they'll kill him if they were merciful. I mean, otherwise they'd skin him alive and leave him for dead. Now, if he were alive today, Jonah were a contemporary preacher today, what he might be thinking to himself was, I wonder if I can lighten up this message a little bit. <laughs> Um, you know, how can I kind of make these people feel a little bit more comfortable about, about God's truth, about themselves? Because, like, I don't want to really, like, rile them up or anything. I mean, like, how can I give them, like, a, like a happy, positive message, you know? You know, like the guy with a, with a big smile and the big suit on Channel 47. Well, good morning, Ninevites. I'm glad you're here today. I hope God's giving you a great day. Open up a parking spot right in front for you. Because I just want to encourage you. Encourage you to let go and to let God. And let God to let go. And, you know, we're going to be happy and take care of the money and the relationship. And happy, happy, happy all the time. Let's pray. Right? Just like so, sometimes. Thank you. Sometimes. Sometimes I shake my head when I watch TV. Because you see these guys dancing around all the harder issues of faith and the tension that exists. If you actually want to walk in truth and faith. And be willing to do things that very well could get your head handed to you. Not so with Jonah. The sermon he preaches is something different entirely. There's no opening jokes. <laughs> There's no funny stories. There's not even PowerPoint slides. Yeah, gasp. <laughs> what he did was through a powerful punch, no fancy trimmings. And what he told them, actually in the Hebrew language, it took five words. In our English, it's translated into eight. He proclaimed, 40 more days in Nineveh will be overturned. Let's pray. This is a prophetic message that puts his life on the line. 40 more days and all of you will be overturned by God. Now circle that word overturn because this is important. The Hebrew root for this is hapak, H-A-P-A-K and it has a double meaning. 
You know, some words in uh, English have like multiple meanings, like, uh, you know, bar. You have a bar of soap or a sandbar or sing a few bars of that song or let's stumble into the bar and sing, whatever. One word, multiple meanings. And the Hebrew word for overturned, kapak, means one of two things. It means either overturned and destroyed or it means overturned and made right. You can turn something over and shake it out or you can turn something around and save it. And you see what he's saying? Forty days from now, you'll be hapak. You'll be turned over and destroyed. Or you'll be turned around to God and make things right. Sober message. There's no one between. Forty. The divine number. The time limit. And this is something to take note of. It's a hard truth. I'm almost like uncomfortable talking about it. But mark the lesson. There is a time limit on the mercy of God. Hear that correctly. God's mercy is limitless. No matter where you've been or what you've done, God has literally limitless mercy for you. You can turn back to him at any time. Time itself, on the other hand, is limited. In other words, what God's saying to Jonah is tell them this. My mercy, it's a limited time offer. Forty days. And then your world will get turned upside down. In this reality, that there's a time limit on the, the mercy of God, that's an important truth for some of us to consider, isn't it? Because tomorrow is not promised. Monday morning is actually not promised. Some of you here today may not be here next week. And that's, that's not a threat. That's just like the facts. And some of you are perhaps putting off your return to God. You're like, well, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, you know, this fall or, you know, or next year or, you know, once I get married or I, you know, turn 30 or I have kids or like when you're in a pinch. And that's actually not guaranteed, is it? One of the reasons I picked Walk On for chapter 3 is that the song's popularity really reached its zenith in the wake of 9-11. Some of you have presciently noted that the album actually came out in 2000, doesn't really qualify for the 90s, and that's true. But the song was actually written in the 90s, and its meaning was transformed in the months following September 11th. Bono actually sang it at the Super Bowl the following year as a memorial to all those people, 3,000 more who lost their lives like that, in the blink of an eye, on a normal, everyday morning, that fall. I remember watching the Super Bowl halftime and watching those, those drapes with all the names just scrolling up, those names just scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. There's not many days that go by that I don't think of that morning. And what was that like for people? When they started their day, their, you know, their usual routine, like, you know, you know, had their coffee, you know, went, went to Starbucks, started their commute to work, you know, like, you know, checked in, you know, checked your Blackberry, started doing email, and then poof, 40 days. Time is limited. God's mercy is not, but time is. And Jonah's message to the Ninevites is short, direct, and confrontational. There's no dancing around the issue. There's no flowery language. Just cut to the heart of the matter. Turn your life around or be overturned. Hapak, time short. Time to reconsider where you're going. How will you, how will you respond? Five words. That's why it's even awkward now. The brevity and the bluntness of Jonah's message that makes the Ninevites' response almost unbelievable. Verse 5, let's read it together. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on 
sackcloth. They, they believed God, notice, not Jonah, but that these were God's words directly to them. Now, here's the deal. If you were a first century reader and you read this historical account that this, this, this Hebrew prophet makes his way into this great military stronghold and he preaches the message of, of five words, repent or be overturned, and you're told the response for this is that the entire city took it to heart and humbled themselves before God, you wouldn't believe it. You would you know, literally respond to be like, ha, no way. Would not happen. I mean, come on. Every first century reader of this would be incredulous. They'd be like, there is no stinking way. I do not believe this. It would be as radical as if I said to you, did you, did you hear the news? Did you hear the news? Ozzy Osbourne announced he has found God. And at OzFest, instead of singing Crazy Train as the encore, they went with Amazing Grace. They took off their Black Sabbath t-shirts, every one of them. And they, and they held hands and sang, shine, Jesus, shine. Right? No, you'd be like, you're like, what? Yeah, right, get out of here. It's true. It's true. Howard Stern found Jesus over the weekend. And now he has a Christian radio show that's all about sexual purity. You would be like, what? Yeah, right? What? No way. That would never happen. Yeah, it's true. Paris Hilton is now a gospel singer. Right? There's, whatever you'd say. I mean, it could happen, I guess. But most of us would say, no way. Not true. Yeah, it is true. I mean, can you imagine this? You wake up tomorrow, you see the, the New York Times, the Star Ledger, and it says... The entire city of Newark literally turns to Jesus Christ. They're actually stopping the violence. They're throwing out the drugs and they're baptizing them in the Hudson River. We have pictures, right? They're like, no way. Yeah, it happened in Las Vegas too. Everyone, the owners, the showgirls, the male escorts, people handing out cards. They've repented of their sins. They've turned to God. They're actually emptying the casinos, turning them into churches and using the money to help the poor. And you would say, there is, there is, there is no way. That's exactly what this was like for the neighbors of the Ninevites. They were like, there is no way. And you know why? Because those people are too far from God. And there are those of you right now in this room who are listening online that others actually look at you and say, well, yeah, they're very, very far from God. But you recognize a different truth. That sometimes those who appear the farthest from God are actually the closest. Where others might say, well, there's, there's no way you turn to God. You know deep inside because you've actually tried everything else. And deep down, you can sense it, that, there, that there's this pull that's been drawing you to God. And others might be like, but, but, but they're so far away. And you're like, you have no idea what's going on inside of me. The Ninevites believed God. And they declared a fast. They actually stopped eating as a spiritual symbol of, of seeking God's mercy. And then they put on sackcloth. I kind of like this. Symbol of repentance. This was, this was horribly uncomfortable material. What, it, you know what sackcloth is? It's like, like burlap, but I want you to imagine burlap like coated in molasses and goat's hair. <laughs> and I want you to imagine wearing a shirt and pants made of that, okay? Middle of the desert. Incredibly painful, itchy feeling. It would actually rub them raw, cause rash and irritation. And they wore this as an outward way of saying actually that God, we recognize just how horrible and unworthy and low we are. And everyone, it says, from the greatest to the least, young to old, believe God. And then it actually trickles up, like most spiritual revivals do. And the king gets word of what's happening. Verse 6, and when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, and covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in the dust. You've got to understand this. For a king in the first century Middle East to get off his throne and leave it in the middle of the day was a tremendous symbol of things gone wrong, of repentance. 
And to take off his royal robes in public, stripped in front of the president, was unheard of. And to put on sackcloth would be the most humiliating act a sovereign leader could do. And he said, actually, I am chapak. I am overturned. I'm repenting. And then it says he sat down with everyone else and threw dirt on himself, dust. I am nothing in the eyes of God. Total humiliation, total humility. And he issues this decree. Look at verse 7. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles. In other words, this is now a law. Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. In other words, the king says, actually, we're going to kick this up a notch. I know everyone here is fasting, but we're actually not going to drink anything either. No food, no water for anyone as a reminder of our dependency on God. And it's actually not just us who are going to do this. We're actually bringing in the, 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 the herd, the flock, the beasts as well. And the cows are like, wait, what? What do we do? You know, like, what? Yeah, no, no beast or herd or flock. It's anything else to eat or drink. That's how deep I want our sense of repentance to go as a people. And you realize something. I mean, in the first century, this is an agrarian economy. Not feeding the animals and livestock would have put the entire city's economy in jeopardy. Especially if the fast last 40 days. I was researching this in a commentary, and they said that even after one day without food, the protest, the bleating of, of just 20 head of cattle would have been heard from a half a mile away. Those of you with small children know what it's like. You know what I'm talking about? The goldfish are like 20 minutes. like, no! We, 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 you know, weeping and gnashing and groaning can be heard for miles. So the sense of sorrow and humility just blankets this entire city, and the king continues in verse 8. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let everyone call urgently on God with everything within us. Cry out to God from the deepest places within us. Call urgently. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. In other words, turn from the way we've been living. The Hebrew actually translates it. It says, turn and repent of everyone's evil way and the violence that is in his hands. In other words, he commands a personal lifestyle change of individuals. What you once put your trust in, what, what I even boasted about and administered, our violent, godless way of life, we've got to give it up. We've got to let it go. And then he says this. Who knows? Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. All of us, even the animals, we're going to fling ourselves on his mercy and turn from the godless way we've been living and put our hope in his grace, his compassion. Could you imagine what would happen if an entire city in our country turned and called urgently on God? Entire city, Chicago, USA Today, tomorrow morning, Monday morning, Chicago, Chapak, turns. What happens? They call off everything. Cubs game canceled, the, the cops, the street people, they turn. Can you just imagine, can you imagine a church for that matter? An entire church and everyone with this like cut to the sincerity of heart, just like humbles himself. Everyone in this room and literally says, God, overturn the compromised parts of my life and have mercy on me. What, what, what would happen? What would change? Let's start personal. What would change in your life? What is in your hands that you'd let go of, that, that you turn from? What would you give up to God and surrender 
to his rule instead? What are you holding out on? And what do you think would happen if you did? Who knows? That's an incredible expression of humility on the part of the king. He is like, he literally is like, I've given myself to being the biggest, baddest military leader, leading a savage people, reveling in brutality and destruction and violence. But I've actually heard the word of God on this, and I'm choosing to believe it and actually turn to him. And who knows? I can, I can only own where I've been and throw myself on his mercy and humbly hope that he'll respond with compassion and offer forgiveness for how I've been living. It's quite a gamble, isn't it? To let go of something, a lifestyle, a way of living, and step out in faith and say, who knows, I'm not positive, but I think I'm going to put my life in the hands of God. I'm going to believe that what he says is true and turn over my life to him. Folks, that's literally what becoming a Christian means. It's not a magic prayer. It's not a once experience, put your hand on the screen. It is from a deep place in your heart that no one else can judge, only God knows, that we we actually turn from our sins and put our hope and trust in the God who gave his life for ours, believing that actually God is nothing like me. I can't make my own. He's nothing like me. What would you do if you were on the UN Council and they said, what should we do with Nineveh? Nineveh. <laughs> I'd be like, bomb them, wipe them off the map. And God is like, no, as wicked as they are, they matter to me. And that is the last ditch response for the most wicked and arrogant people who walk this earth. That's the heart of God. Why believe that? The symbol we're given for this is Jesus Christ, who says, when you are actually this far off from God, I will give my life as a payment for your sin and a symbol of how far my Father will go to to show his love to you. Hapak. And receive chesed, the grace. Of pursuing love found only in Jesus Christ. The Ninevites believed God. They had their hearts overturned. And that response was incredible. In fact, the only thing more unbelievable is God's response to them. Verse 10, final verse, we'll end here reads, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction he had threatened. I want you to circle that word compassion because the Hebrew word for that, naham, N-A-H-A-M, that's significant. Other translations render it this way. They say, then God relented. Then God changed his mind. That God actually, some versions actually say, then God repented. It turned, he turned himself. And you see something incredible. That when creatures, his creatures, chapak, or turn around in our ways, we repent of our sin, God does something similar. He turns. He doesn't repent in the sense of like changing his heart. God has no sin to repent from. But when people turn to God, God turns too. He literally changes his mind. He stays his justice. He relents or responds, not out of his demand for justice, but out of our need for mercy, out of compassion towards us. 
And in this, this change of heart, it's, it's a dramatic reminder, folks, of the, of the incredible love of our Creator for His creation, for you, for me, His radical willingness to seek out the most distant person who's farthest and restore them to His grace. No matter where you've been, what you've done, love wins. God is actually willing to be moved and literally absorb the consequences of our deepest sin into Himself. That's what happened when Jesus died. He, took on, he, be, he who had no sin became sin for us and met the demands of justice so that we could receive compassion instead, forgiveness and grace. How deep does God's grace go? I want you to think of the most wicked, arrogant, violent people history has known. If Stalin repented, would he qualify for grace? Oh yeah, because it has nothing to do with Stalin. It's about the depth of God's mercy. If Bin Laden laid down his sword, peace with God, yeah, that could be his. What about a whole nation? I mean, if America put on sackcloth and actually undertook systemic change that showed true remorse for our failings as a people, our, our greed, our hedonism, our self-centeredness, God would, God would turn too? Yeah, God, God would actually turn too. The people's turning in repentance is mirrored by God's turning with compassion. And that should give every one of us incredible hope. From the greatest to the least, how far you are, how close, doesn't even matter. Jesus is proof of God's promise not to give us what we deserve, but what we need most. Can you imagine the transformation of an entire city, of a nation, of a church, of a single life, your life? Maybe today is a day. Maybe today is a day you finally let go and you actually turn to God. It's your time. It's your moment. Time to stop running because it doesn't matter how far you are. Time to surrender and let God overtake your heart, even in the scary areas because God is coming to you a shaney again, a second time. And your choice is to respond. Respond immediately. With a sense of urgency. But to do that, you have to what? You have to let go, Kalalbo, of something you're holding on to. I don't know what that area is, but I believe God is probably speaking to some of you even directly right now. You know exactly what it is. It's the thing you haven't been able to get out of your mind for the last few weeks. That's not me. That's God speaking to you. Kalalbo, let go. Release your reservations and put your trust in Christ alone. Turn to him. Commit to follow him, to actually walk in a new way. And God will respond with compassion, grace to forgive you, and his spirit to change you for good. You're not going to be able to do it in your own strength. That's why he's going to give you his spirit once you turn. What are you waiting for? You can stand in place frozen, or you can walk on in. Put, put your faith in God and your life literally in his hands. I want to give you the chance to talk with God even right now. So let's just bow our heads together. It doesn't matter where you're at. I just want to invite two kinds of people to pray. Um, those of you who already know God, maybe you've been on this Jesus thing for a while, but, but, but tonight or today or, again, listening online, wherever you are, he's kind of, God's kind of put his finger on a part of your life, an area, a relationship, some aspect of your life that isn't fully surrendered to his authority. It is time for you to let it go. To surrender to him. And, and you can do that now. Just take this moment, holy moment, you and God, to ask for his grace.
Lord, thank you for compassion, for a second chance, for coming again and again and again. Father, your patience is, is inhuman. It is supernatural. Thank you for your patience with me. Thank you for your mercy. Maybe you've never placed your trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. Maybe you've been skimming the edges of faith, but, but keep kind of putting it off. God, I understand that. It can be scary, intimidating to do that. But the only thing that's scarier is not knowing if you'll have another day to think about it. Forty days. And then if it will be overturned. I have no way of knowing where you are on that continuum. Some of you may be on day three. Some of you on day 39. And this week, time runs out. You can turn and take a chance on that continuing or take a chance and turn and make things right with God right now. It's very simple to do. Scripture says if we confess our sins, God is totally faithful and just to forgive us of all of our sins and just cleanse us and fill us with his spirit. Through belief in God's sacrifice of Jesus, we can have new life. But we have to humble ourselves and ask for it. A simple prayer to do that would be, God, I need you. I invite you into my heart, Jesus, and I give my life to you. Thank you for dying for me. I want to follow you. Please put your spirit in me, God. I can't do this myself. But I want to live a new life on your terms.